You're listening to The Boz Show, the socially conscious podcast for leaders. Dr. Stanley, welcome to The Boz Show from all the way from England. Although you're not from England, but you're out there doing some work. How's everything? Doing well, man. I'm glad I could connect. This is, uh, this is exciting. I'm looking forward to the interview. Yeah. How's, how's everything out there? It's it's good. I've, I've been here for three weeks and uh, I'll be here for a little over two and a half months, but mm-hmm. still uh, still getting used to the time difference. Uh, so, you know, it's it is um, 4 p.m. over here, but uh, my body's still <laughs> is getting used to things. But it's great. I mean, we're I'm doing some sightseeing. I got my wife and my daughter with me. Mm-hmm. Um, have a pretty relaxed work schedule uh, with Imperial College, where, which I'm doing a visiting professorship with. So things are good. That's great. It's always good to take some time out and really just focus on the work that you're really interested in, right? Yeah, yeah. It gives me some time to, um, you know, really connect with the new audience out here that are interested in some of the same things that, you know, we're interested on the other side of the, mm-hmm. you know, across the pond in the U.S., um, you know, there's a lot of similarities. So I'll actually be doing both my academic work and, uh, you know, nonprofit work out here. So yeah, it's, it's, it's always interesting to see, you know, the sort of similarities in, you know, British culture and American culture and just, um, you know, it, it's so similar, but it's also also different, right? The humor, where people talk, people interact. Yeah. I mean, just the TV shows, it's just like a whole, you just feel like, oh man, this is almost, like what you're used to watching, but it's like so different still. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's certainly, uh, I mean, even we speak, we both, you know, US and UK speak English, but it's definitely very different. Uh, I mean, I, somet- I sometimes have a hard time understanding. They sometimes have a hard time understanding me. So <laughs> sometimes takes like repeating stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think uh, you know, I had, I had a friend from London and he always used to make fun of me for the for the way I, I said water and it was like you know they have a completely different way like water in the U.S. is one thing over there they say like something else <laughs> but there's a lot of words that they see us you know sort of mispronouncing yeah yeah so today here we're talking we're talking about so many different things your book um your nonprofit, prison to phd uh and just your story um which has been really transformative and, and, and is really uh, speaking to the core of many of our societal issues today. Um, right. Before we get into anything, I just want to hear from your mouth, just your story. What, what's your story? Yeah, so again, uh, appreciate you for having me on your show. Um, you know, in a, in a nutshell, you know, what really connects me to the work that I do is that I am myself uh, a formerly incarcerated person with multiple felony convictions who was sentenced to 10 years in prison as a prior and persistent career criminal. Um, I was told by a prosecutor uh, during my sentencing that, that I had no hope for changing the decisions that I had been making uh, in my early 20s at that time. Um, and you know, fast forward some time, I'm now Dr. Stanley Andres, an endocrinologist, scientist, and professor at Howard University College of Medicine 
formerly at Johns Hopkins University um, in, the, in the medical school there, uh, and also a visiting professor at Georgetown and newly, as we were just discussing, uh, a visiting professor at Imperial College of London. Mm. Um, so, you know, clearly this prosecutor's prophecies of me being this career criminal and uh, stuck in this revolving door of incarceration mm. was not quite correct. <laughs> I mean, it's, um, it's amazing that person even made an assumption, right? Like, how do you even know if someone is going to change or not change? I mean, it's just an assumption yeah. that person's making about uh, people. Yeah, you know, and I went in um, thinking that, you know, she, you know, I had multiple convictions and felonies, um, class A drug trafficking, you know, the highest class of, of drug charges. So, you know, she painted me as this dangerous threat to society that I, you know, I went in thinking that, holy, you know, wow, like I, I am this really bad person that does, mm -hmm. uh, you know, some pretty crazy things. Mm -hmm. um, but come to find out that's just the way they do things. Mm -hmm. They have to, the prosecutor, the game that they play, they have to make it sound as bad and worse as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, oftentimes what they're doing, and in the case of, you know, my situation, the pro prosecutor was pushing for life in prison. So I had a class A felony, the highest class of felony. And, you know, the sentencing range was 10 years to life. Mm -hmm. She was pushing for life. Um, and so she had to paint the picture as worse as possible to try to get the judge to give me life. Yeah. Um, knowing that she probably didn't believe that I deserved life, but knowing that it was a game in this negotiation, if she pushes high, my, my attorney pushes the lowest, it's going to be somewhere in the middle. Um, and I got sentenced to 10 years. That somewhere in the middle was 10 years. Um, but for her, the prosecutor, she's, you know, it's a political game. And, you know, so I, I grew up in the Ferguson, Missouri area, which has, you know, come to light all the things that were going on in that particular area. It's a predominantly black area over police, you know, excessive policing, all, all that other type of stuff that the world now knows about Ferguson, even here, as I'm mentioning it. Um, and then I got popped in this place a little bit outside of, I mean, a little bit outside of St. St. Louis uh, called St. Charles. It's, it's a predominantly white area. And, you know, back in the early 2000s, there was a lot of white flight going on, people leaving St. You know, Louis and moving out to this area. Um, and to catch a black kid committing crime in this white area, white area the prosecutor was essentially like, I'm going to hang this N word, you know what I mean? Like, because I'm going to show my constituents that I'm not going to, we're not going to let you come here to our area and, you know, cause, cause trouble. Um, so there, she was looking to hang me and she knew politically that would be in her favor because in order to move up and become a judge or a district attorney, these are elected officials. She has to show a resume of saying, I am tough on crime. I've convicted 500 years of incarceration. You know, I've successfully sentenced 500 years worth of incarceration over my career. And that's a bonus, you know, that, that is looked favorably. 
So, you know, it, it was a game. And, and it's sad to say she goes home at night and the people she's dealing with gets, you know, I, I got sent, I, I was locked in a cage, you know, that, that was the result of that interaction. Um, and it, there's just no value of human life in, in these types of interactions. It's, you know, you're, you're just I mean, stuck you're in doing system, your show to try to progress, you, you know, you're doing what you have to do. You're trying to get people like myself and other people to progress your show, right? Like we're all trying to push our careers forward, right? Mm -hmm. You're doing what you have to do to push your show forward, right? She was doing what she had to do to push her career forward. Mm -hmm. um, was she racist? Did she really hate me because I was some black kid from North St. Louis? Hard to tell, but the system set it up for her to hate me mm -hmm. and for her to punish me more harshly. Um, I was actually popped with um, several people in this indictment that involved uh, a nine-month um, uh, DEA investigation that resulted in several, uh, you know, large drug raids. Um, the three of us that were black all ended up in prison. The two white individuals that got popped in this uh, particular, uh, you know, indictment or whatnot never stepped foot in a prison cell. Um, same, same, you know, uh, judicial system uh, that we got popped in but they seem to see uh, hopelessness in, in my blackness and hope, you know, in, in their whiteness. So a lot, a lot of judgment calls, a lot of just, you know, I mean, it seems like this, I mean, it, it, it is a problem in our society that people are thinking about their career in these spaces of justice, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you know, that person cares about an election more than they do about their, 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 their cases. Um, and, and you see this so often, right? You see this so, with so many different cases where people basically care about their image and they're pushing for a certain sentencing. And, uh, you know, it, what's interesting is you, you have a lot of people and they use it as sort of a defense tactic. They'll say that, look, we're against mob rule. That's why we're, we don't want you to speak up or something like that, right? But at the end of the day, they're, they're appealing to a different group of people, a different mob in, in that sense, right? And they're saying that, you know, we're, we want to be tough on crime and they're going to go back to their own, you know, their own communities and, and brag about that, uh, which, which is horrific. And, you know, the, the crazy part is that, you know, to constantly drill in and say that, you know, you're not going to be able to go somewhere in life. I mean, why? Why would, why, why would you ever want to make that call about anybody, right? Why would you not want them to reach where they where they where they should be in life? Right. Um, so. Yes. So it's, it's so a lot of this, you know, like you mentioned, it, it falls into the system. Um, but beyond that, um, you know. It's not easy to break out of that cycle, which is why I think a lot of people lose hope. Um, you know, in that process, because after seeing all of that, you're just like, you know, I'm done. So, you know, what was it for you that you said you're going to keep going and, and actually, you know, uh, take control of your narrative? Yeah, so, you know, after having just been sentenced to, to, to 10 years and, and, and having to look that in the face, um, and just having been told that I was this career criminal for, for a while at the start of my incarceration, 
I was very much believed that I was going to be in this revolving door and I was indeed this career criminal. I was indeed just stuck and hopeless in terms of never getting out of the system now that I'm in with multiple convictions. I've actually been in it for some time, even before I went to prison. Um, it was, you know, a couple of things that really got me out of that. And, um, you know, one was the unfortunate situation of, um, you know, almost immediately when I went into prison, uh, my father's health went kind of just, it just plummeted. And he was, uh, over the course of about two years, he was in and out of the hospital um, and had multiple surgeries where they, uh, you know, amputated, you know, piece by piece, both his lower limbs um, to the point that he eventually ended up losing his battle with type two diabetes uh, before I had the opportunity to reconnect with them. Um, you know, death and dying is difficult in any situation, but having to deal with that while you're locked in a cage was this emotionally just devastating thing. Um, but I, I took, and, and you can't really express, like you can't cry or like, uh, you know, talk about deep emotions in, in ways that you, you know, you know, possibly can on the outside, on the inside. Um, so I bottled it up and I used it instead of just, you know, a lot of people use that for anger, you know, they, they, they bottle that up and it becomes frustration and anger and it's, and it, and it is matriculates in in multiple fights and just, you know, being angry with the world and others. And that results in you getting into all types of prison problems. Mm -hmm. Um, for me, I bottled it up and, you know, I began reading more, I began writing more, I began becoming very interested in um, learning about this disease that was literally eating up uh, this man that I, you know, held so high in, you know, regard for, um, and that I felt in very much ways he was trying to get me, he had been trying to get me to stop selling drugs and get out of the system uh, as I, you know, was arrested for the first time at 14 years old and moved into the juvenile system and continued to have you know, encounters with the law, he had been fighting for some time to get me away from this. Um, and he's actually, you know, my book is dedicated to him. The phrase that the book, uh, the title of the book, um, It's Never Too Late to Do Good, is a phrase that he used to tell me, uh, my, my family is Haitian, uh, and the phrase is, uh, and it was, it was kind of this combination of, um, it's never too late to reach your full potential, and, you know, it's never too late to start doing the right thing. Um, and, you know, he had just been delivering this to me constantly and I wasn't listening. And then, you know, in prison when I had the time to kind of soak that in and then I was losing him, mm -hmm. um, that's when it really struck me like, um, you know, I need to, I can't be in this revolving door. Mm -hmm. um, so that tied with those emotional things going on tied with this mentor who stepped into my life shortly before I went into prison, um, who saw all the talent, potential gift of gab, my, you know, my personality and my ability to connect with people, my intelligence. Um, you know, I had been using all that to sell a lot of drugs. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I connected with this individual and he saw me using it in a different way. Um, and he started investing in this potential that I hadn't quite seen that my skills could be used in this way. Um, you know, when I say invested in my potential and investing in me, he would literally put 
uh, time and money um, into me. Um, so he was a professor at a university. He, would, he started sending me information and articles on diabetes. I read my first uh, scientific article on diabetes while I was locked in a cage, and I just started immersing myself in this. Um, and with him, with the help of him, um, you know, sci you know, a scientific article, like every other word is some shit that you've never heard of. And like, it's completely hard to understand, but he, you know, he, he went through the process of teaching me how to read these scientific journal articles. Uh, and it was really over the course of months that it happened because it happened through letters and short phone calls and things of that nature. But it, it got to the point that I was, he and other support systems really, and, 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 you know, my dad losing, losing my dad, um, that I was just like, I'm done with this street life. And I, you know, I really want to pursue education. And this mentor kind of helped me do that. Um, I applied to a number, you know, when it was time for me to come home, I ended up applying to a number of different colleges and universities. Uh, I was rejected from every single one, except for the one that he was on the admissions committee on. Uh, and that was St. Louis University. Um, I got in, I completed my, uh, you know, I got out, I got into St. Louis University, I completed my MBA and PhD simultaneously in four years at the top of my class. And it was just a wrap from there. And I, you know, so you years were later, I'm sitting here in London <laughs> as a professor at like my fourth university now. <laughs> so you, so you went in straight uh, post-prison to an MBA and PhD program uh, and you finished your bachelor's in the past already or? Yeah, so uh, I was, um, you know, to talk a little bit about like the school to prison pipeline, mm -hmm. um, you know, I certainly fell into that, you know, uh, that theory and process of, of what the school to prison pipeline is. Um, you know, I was criminalized even before that encounter at 14 that I mentioned of my first arrest, um, you know, as far back as elementary, middle and high school. Um, teachers were, I was just constantly seen as a troublemaker, seen as a bad person, um, in detention and suspension. I almost got kicked out of high school on a number of occasions. Um, but it was the fact that I was, uh, one of the sports stars. I was, uh, you know, track basketball, football, um, and the principal, the disciplinary principal was also my track coach. So he was you know, as the teachers were constantly trying to kick me out and like thinking that I'm a bad person, this person that kind of had some authority was, you know, helping me stay, stay in. Mm -hmm. um, but I ended up getting a football scholarship and played football and track in college. So I went on um, and it was, uh, I was, you know, had these encounters with the law for some years, but I was fortunate enough to actually graduate um, and just a week later after my college graduation, I was sitting in that courtroom with that prosecutor, you know, painting that picture of me as this career criminal. And, and they didn't even take into account um, that you were in college finishing a degree. None of that mattered to them. Yeah, she, you know, her part of her argument was that that's what makes me more dangerous. Uh, you, you know, you know what's worse than a street thug? An intelligent, educated street thug is it was her perspective. So uh, she flipped it. That that was that was my defense. That was my defense mm -hmm. that you know I'm in college. I actually just graduated. I, I was my my case was going on for some time, um, but you know that was my defense. It's like I'm I'm in college. I have a future ahead of me. 
like, please grant me mercy. And, you know, her thoughts were, you've effed up multiple times. You, you, you're, you're playing games with this. Um, you're just getting better at what you do. Uh, and we're not going to let you, we're not going to let you escape. We, you, we want to see you in prison for life. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You know, that's, does she know where you're at now or no? I get asked that every single time. Uh, I, I do talks and interviews, and I've reached out to the prosecutor and judge at every milestone in my life since I've gotten out. I've, you know, I invited them to. I informed them when I got into the PhD program. I invited them to my PhD defense. I invited them to the PhD graduation. I even invited them to my wedding. Uh, <laughs> And I, um, they, they never accepted any of those uh, invitations. That's always, it's always hard for people to, to recognize when they're wrong, right? And it's just like, you're gonna, you're in this moment where you're just like, man, I did something completely wrong in it. You, you've convinced yourself you're this great person and, you know. Yeah, and, and, you know, I, I, when I was writing those letters, I, I made sure to phrase them because I made sure to phrase them very thoughtfully and tactfully. Um, I didn't want it to come across as, look at me now, mother effer, you know what I mean? <laughs> I, I didn't want it to come across as that because that's not what I that's not what I felt. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to, I was just in this process of change. There was just so much, it's like, you know, butterfly kind of like coming and transforming into this, this new thing. And um, I was just excited about being this new person and being like having new purpose in life mm-hmm. as opposed to my prior purpose that I thought was there for me. Um, and, you know, I was just excited to kind of share that with them. Um, but I don't know if it came across as look at me now, mother effers, you know what I mean? And, and they were just like, no, nah, we don't want to talk to this guy. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I mean, you know, although you know, the burden isn't, isn't on, isn't on you and, and, and many people that go through the system, but at some point, these messages, these letters, you know, telling them your story, I hope people will start changing, right? Uh, you know, other prosecutors would take heed and, and really understand that, you know, what their implications have and, you know, what other direction they can go. Um, but, uh, you know, things are polarizing, you know, once you're on that side of the team and you, you need to look good, you're, you just do what yeah. you have to do. It's that I got to progress my career thing again. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's just, uh, it's interesting. I, I mean, I think the change, you know, what my organization does is really, um, so my, you know, I, I ended up fi- founding an organization called uh, From Prison Cells, a PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, and we run a or we run a program called Prison to Professionals, where uh, we get about 400 applications a year. Uh, we about 100 plus people or so, men and women, currently and formerly incarcerated, um, complete our program. Um, and our our focus is really on helping those individuals excel beyond what society sees as the norm. So again taking that framework of what the prosecutor felt was going to be the future of this person entangled in the system and just turning that completely around and saying, 
we control our narratives and this is the narrative of a person and people who've been through the system. So we're really helping people change the narrative and really helping them excel beyond this, get out of prison, stop committing crime, take this minimum wage job. Mm. Um, there's much too much talent potential and just, it, it's not a good model in mm-hmm. terms of, um, you know, productivity for this community and society. Like, why would you want to waste all of this human power and knowledge and talent by just cutting them out and not giving them access and opportunity mm-hmm. to really, you know, um, be productive members of society? And so it just makes more sense. Um, to provide access and opportunity for, uh, on so many different levels. So, um, you know, we truly believe that transformative change is through allowing access and opportunity to education. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we believe that it's access and opportunity to higher education for people who've been through the system. But I, I also, that's what the organization understands. But I also understand on the larger scale, it really needs to be access to education, even at those elementary, even pre-K levels where, I mean, the school to prison pipeline is starting in the pre-K level actually. Mm -hmm. Um, There's data that shows that two and three-year-olds are being sent to detention and suspension Mm. from their daycare. Like, how, how are you giving, like, how does that even work that you give a two-year-old detention? So you're, you know, you're basically and, training and, them and from start to accept that this is their path, right? And it's happening more in black and brown boys and girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, if I find, you know, I, I mentioned that I'm here with my two-year-old daughter in, in London. Like, if I find that her daycare teacher is criminalizing, you know, criminalizing a two-year-old baby, mm. That's that's just just crazy. I mean, there would be some problems if uh, you know I'd have some serious problems with that that teacher. Um, but that is you know that's it's starting that early, um, and you know it, it's that it's the show. I know a lot of people may be familiar with um, when they see us. It's that whole idea. It's like even though she's this cute little baby girl. Mm-hmm. You see her, her, her curly hair and you see her, uh, you know, the skin color and you, you don't see that cute little girl anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that is insane to think that that's how some people are viewing us. Um, but that, that, that's where we need to change that, that narrative. We're working on it much later um, and changing that narrative of people who've been through the system. But really, um, we need to start changing the narrative across that spectrum of you know, and so much of it is starting with education and in education and the criminalization is starting within education. So uh, that's certainly one of the areas that needs a lot of change. What do, you know, people need to change? You know, we talked about systematic issues, you know, in in this scenario, we need, you know, you need to change systems, prosecutors, educators, but then, but what their focus always becomes is the person, right? It's like, oh, well, people need to change, um, which is which is important, but it's not the entire picture. We have a lot of other people that need to change also. 
that are perpetuating this. Can you talk a little bit about who needs to change and, you know, what does that process should look like? Yeah, I mean, on a systems level, um, the change that I refer to in both the prosecutor side and the educator side, um, we need a system change where in terms of the prosecutor side, we need to dismantle the incentives that are present for prosecutors to view someone like me the way that they do. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are, there are these incentives in place that, and, and I mean, when you look at the numbers, I had, there was a white, my prosecutor was this white lady, mm-hmm. but given the way the system was designed, it could have been a black person who's mm-hmm. trying to progress in their career. So mm-hmm. they know their constituents are white people that don't want to see these black folks moving out. So mm-hmm. they're going to hang me. So it, it's the system that needs to change these incentives that encourage them to hang black boys and girls, you know, to, mm-hmm. to give these long unjust sentences and, and um, or, you know, sentences that are different than what they're giving to white individuals. Mm. Um, so, at the, you know, that in, in the judicial system, there is this prosecutorial discretion where the prosecutors are given, you know, a little bit too much power um, and, or, you know, not a little bit, are given too much power. Mm-hmm. And we need to flip the system of electing these individuals, really. I mean, it should just be, you know, the best person gets the job, not the most popular, the person who can be the most popular to the constituents in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then on the educator side, we need to find ways to fund black and brown community, the, the, the education system in black and brown communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, when you talk about systems, you can't just, they're so intertwined, um, you know, to change one system, like what I just mentioned, funding education more, it actually involves like housing. Mm-hmm. You need to change housing policies that you, you know, don't create such concentrated areas of poverty and people of color in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, if you find ways to, you know, the whole defund the police idea, um, a lot of people on the far side of not wanting to see that, they hear that as getting rid of the police. Mm-hmm. That means it, it, it's not, that's not necessarily what's meant. Mm-hmm. It means reallocating the money that is being given to police. Mm-hmm. I, my raid, you know, my DEA, the drug raid that took place that um, that I was involved in, it was a 50-man drug raid. I, I had 50 assault rifles aimed at my head. Um, I could have easily been Mike Brown laying there dead in the streets, and, and all that would have been said was, oh, just another young Black thug selling drugs in the street. Who really cares? Mm-hmm. Black lives don't matter, right? Um, and to them, they, they literally brought a militarized army mm. to get one person. Um, that could have, it could have been resolved with two cop cars, you know, yeah. bring 10 cars, 50 police. And that's, that's when we say defund the police, they didn't need 50 people with guns that are in the tens of thousands of dollars and each one of them has one and vehicles that are in the you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, these militarized vehicles, 
that's again, there was literally money funneling to small police departments to say, you guys want tanks? Mm-hmm. We'll give you tanks if you start arresting more black people mm-hmm. and more people in these uh, particular areas. So there was this, during the war on drugs, the federal government was just dumping tons of money and militarized supplies mm-hmm. into these small police departments that have no idea how to drive a tank or use assault rifles. Mm-hmm. You know, they, these people are trained to be using assault rifles in the streets. Um, so when we say def- defund police, we mean you don't need tanks, you don't need assault rifles, you don't need a hundred people to go get one drug dealer mm-hmm. and use that money instead for education. Mm. You know, like give that place where this drug dealer is from more resources and take it away from these militarized police. Yeah, you know, that that, that does speak to the core of the issue. I mean, we have a problem in, in our society here of uh, over police, over weaponizing, and it's and it's happening within our local communities, within our local states, but it's also happening abroad. You know, how many countries are we in? engaging in war and how many other countries are, are we selling weapons to how many military we have the most some of the most uh, amount of military bases in the world um you know easily the places that we're going into if we were focused on on building up that society and, and not uh yeah. you know policing places we'd be in a better place um right. this goes to the history of how we're actually approaching the problem uh, as a society, and that 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 shift has to take place. I mean, as a, as a whole. Um. So shifting the conversation a little bit, um, you know, people have to go through loopholes, right? And the system is likely not gonna, going to change uh, immediately. Um, so people like yourself and others, they're they're going to be stuck in the cycle uh, unless you know. There's mentors, there's people helping them. Um, how, how can people get the help that they need? And um, what are the challenges? You know, you, you had the great opportunity of having uh, uh, this idea to ha- get your bachelor's before, but for many people, they're going to start, um, you know, start from scratch. And, and that journey is a struggle um, because, you know, the college campus is also not very uh, uh inclusive per se uh, for people that are coming um uh people that are coming uh from from prison yeah that's a good point and um i i just um i'll probably have to jump off here in just a second but um there you're absolutely correct there's a number of barriers that are in place one for black and brown individuals in the higher education space And that's oftentimes why there's a need for uh, black student unions and organizations and, you know, uh, you know, different first generation college student student groups and things of that nature. Um, But unfortunately, something that we're actually working to do, and we've actually started one uh, at Howard University um, is a student organization that's focused on the experience of someone who's been through the criminal legal system, a formerly incarcerated person. Um, So, you know, we're starting to create that environment. We're working with a couple of, we're working with about 10 other universities uh, and students from, you know, 10 universities where we're looking to create these and looking to create more of them across the country. Mm. Um, But some of those unique barriers are 
to a formerly incarcerated pursuing higher formerly incarcerated person pursuing higher education is uh, you know the psychological barrier the barrier that is in place for when people like the prosecutor in my case uh, kind of you know put this idea in my head as a very young individual that I was going to be in this revolving door that I was kind of scum, that I was no good, that I was hopeless, that I was a criminal, that I'll always have this criminal thinking. Um, so we need that even when you get out, all you're gonna be able to do is get a minimum wage job, working with your hands, like all these things, uh, these psychological barriers are some of the most challenging ones for the individual. And and they're, they're at the level of the person and the society, like society feels one way about them and the person feels, the same way about themselves mm. um, but then like some you know some physical barriers are things like the criminal conviction question the box um, you know I got rejected from every single place that I applied to uh, because I had to check the box um, I also checked the box in the place that I got into but I had this person that was advocating for me on the backside of it um, I ended up finishing at the top of my class I probably could have you know, I was probably qualified to do well in those other places, but they were like, oh, this guy's in prison right now. And he's applied to us like, what is he thinking? Like, we don't want him. Um, so, you know, the box, aside from, it's also just the scary thing for people like myself, like you see it and you just get, you've been rejected so many times. Um, you know, like I, I was rejected from so many jobs when I, when I got out. So, you know, every time I see that box, I know that I'm thinking like, they're gonna just reject me. Like, Stan, what are you doing? Like, why are you wasting your time? Just don't even go forward. And, and, and studies and statistics actually show uh, that 66% of people that uh, come across that box who are formerly incarcerated, stop the application and don't complete it. So they don't even move forward. Mm. Um, you know, funding is another thing. There was this, you know, we just worked really hard to reinstate uh, for, for 25 years, Pell Grants or having the opportunity to pursue education while you're incarcerated had been removed. And it had been removed in the height of um, the war on drugs as a penalizing, it was this thing to change incarceration to this thing of punishment. So before 1994, when Bill Clinton passed um, uh, the Clinton, as it's called, the Clinton Crime Bill, and uh, Joe Biden was actually the, the lead senator on that. And he, he since kind of reversed, kind of apologized mm -hmm. for having that thinking um, to try to get black vote, which, you know, I, I truly believe that he is, um, you know, it was an era where all politicians on both sides were kind of trying to be tough on crime. Mm -hmm. But before 1994, there was literally people getting masters and PhDs inside prison because they had the funding for it. And then after 94, just literally from hundreds of programs to nothing. And it's been that way. It, it's been that way for over 25 years now. Uh, but groups like mine, um, we've, we've fought to, we've just recently this year got Pell Grants reinstated. Um, it's it's going to go into effect in about a year. So that's a, a big win for, um, you know, the currently incarcerated population so they can get school while they're in prison. Um, and then there's just, the barriers of, you know, lack of access to mentoring, lack of access to um, advising, being many, many folks who've been through the system being first generation. And that's what we're doing. Like we've P2P, my organization, Prison to Professionals, has created this environment mm -hmm. that mimics what 
happens, you know, when um, folks that have more privileges and opportunities go through college. They have easy access to different family members who's already been through college that could tell them the ropes of like, go out and party, but not too much to do the, you know, like give them the little ins and out that you don't get in the college pamphlet book, you know? Mm. Um, so we, we've created this environment to make college conducive for someone who's formerly incarcerated. Amazing. So Dr. Sen, I know you have to go in a, in a minute, just real quickly, tell us what you're working on, your books, uh, places people can find you. Sure, yeah, you can uh, find me on all platforms uh, at, at Professor underscore Andres. Uh, so uh, at prof, P-R-O-F underscore my last name, Andres, A-N-D-R-I-S-S-E, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, you can find the organization at prison number two pro. So at prison two pro uh, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, and, you know, I'm working on a lot of stuff, uh, but, you know, one of the exciting things, as you mentioned, uh, August 3rd, uh, my book comes out. It's a memoir that details uh, my journey, a little bit of which I've told you today. Um, it's called From Prison Cells to PhD. Uh, it's never too late to do good. And it really goes through, just as I was mentioning, this phrase that my dad used to tell me that uh, trying to get the idea to individuals and the readers and the audience that I'm looking to speak to um, that change is possible. Change is possible for everyone. As humans, we're dynamic. You know, our decisions that we make aren't necessarily decisions that we're always going to be making. And we need to create access and opportunity uh, for those who may have made some poor decisions early in life. That doesn't mean that they don't deserve to have opportunity and access. And that doesn't mean that they're not intelligent, bright, talented, have high potential. Um, and, and the story just goes through how the different socioeconomic, political things that I've touched on a little bit uh, played into my story and how it just plays into stories of people like myself who've been through the system. Amazing. Appreciate your time, Dr. Stanley. We'll keep in touch. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. It's been, it's been a pleasure. All right. Take care. Yes. Take care. Thank you guys for listening to The Boz Show. Make sure to subscribe, like, comment, and share.